Hello and a very warm welcome to the State of Our Nation, a podcast by Access Social Care. I'm your host, Carrie Gersteimer, and today we're going to be talking to experts, leaders and change makers about all things adult social care. We will all need social care at some point in our lives and at Access Social Care, our aim is to ensure that people get the support they have a right to. So listen along to find out more about the state of our nation as we discuss the challenges facing millions of people in need of social care across the country. To help keep you all in the loop, let's begin with this month's news roundup. So please join me in welcoming Alison Holt to the State of Our Nation podcast. Alison is the current social affairs editor at BBC News, and this role covers all things social care and disability. So I'm really pleased to have her join us for our first news roundup. Hello, Alison, and welcome to the State of Our Nation podcast. Hi, Carrie, and thank you very much indeed for inviting me. That's a pleasure. So we're recording this podcast at an extraordinary time for politics. Anyone hoping for a quiet time post-pandemic will be severely disappointed. We've had a revolving door at number 10, inflation, a cost of living crisis, along with really severe um, market turbulence. If we look back to the start of the summer, on the 3rd of July, Wes Streeting, Labour's shadow minister for health and social care, signalled his plan for social care reform and indicated that Labour are working towards a national care service. And then just four days later, Boris Johnson resigned and, well, the rest is history. So, Alice, I'm curious on on, on your reflections on how and why this government to date has failed to fix social care. Well, in fairness to this government, it is an issue that has, has caused problems for a number of governments over time. I mean, we have had more than a dozen reports, commissions, green papers, white papers. So it has been that nettle that no one has quite managed to grasp. No one's been willing to to grasp it. And I think having reported on these issues for many years now, I think one of the problems is is that whereas most of us understand the NHS and how it works, what it means to us, we have a a relationship, if you like, with it throughout our lives. With social care, it's much harder for people to understand how it operates until they need it. Um, Often that will be in their later life or it will be when a family member needs support in some way. And I think, therefore, it's quite easy for it not to be clearly on the the radar of many people, not a big election issue. Obviously, it's become more of an election issue as time has gone on. And of course, we had Boris Johnson arriving on the steps of Downing Street in July 2019, saying that he would fix social care once and for all. Um, A year ago, we had his plan for fixing social care. Then we had the health and social care levy, which is now moving towards being scrapped. And uh, we still don't have some of the fundamental problems facing the care system fixed. I mean, I've been reporting in the last couple of weeks about 165,000 care vacancies in England. And also the CQC, the Care Quality Commission, saying that the system is gridlocked across health and care with social care being a major factor. So I think that underlines that what was perhaps a more of a, an issue affecting a smaller number of people a decade 
two decades ago is now something that is having a major impact upon the way in which our whole system operates. You've you've touched upon a really frightening point there with the workforce shortages in social care. So we run a member organisation and most of our social care providing members are telling us that the highest risk factor they face at the moment is the staffing crisis. Um, You've touched there upon the fact that there's hundreds of thousands of job vacancies and we know that care workers are leaving because they can't afford to pay their own bills. They're leaving to take jobs in retail and in hospitality, sometimes people that have worked in the sector for decades. Um, And we're losing that expertise from the sector. And we know that without staff, the whole system breaks down. Do you have any any thoughts on what needs to change there, Alison? Well, I've spoken um, again over the months months and years to a, to a lot of people working in care and many people are there because they feel abs- absolutely passionate about it often they've got some sort of family experience which has um shaped the way they think about care and it's something they absolutely want to do uh and i think care has for a long time relied on that passionate desire of an individual to work in a sector um for them, it's a vocation, not for everyone, obviously, but but you know, for for a significant number of people, it is it is something they they really want to do. But set against that, um, you know, the care staff I spoke to in the summer who were talking about not being able to afford all the f- the food they needed, so getting back and having a bowl of cereal because they didn't have enough in the in their cupboards to have a a proper meal at the end of the long day. One young woman who said that um, her parents were buying her the essentials so that she to, to basically make her salary go further. And you know, we know energy bills are going to go up and are going up and will go up um, over winter. So I think we're putting people in a really difficult situation where they have to make a choice, perhaps between a job they really want to do and being paid more for stacking shelves in a supermarket or working for a delivery company or in in hospitality. There are plenty of jobs out there and many of them are paying more. So when I speak to both care workers and care providers and actually local authorities too, they're all saying the same thing. We have to pay staff more and we have to value them and we have to give them a career structure so that that it, it becomes a job that society says this is a job that we really need people to do we want them to do and we value them for doing it absolutely and it would be remiss of me not to mention carers of course um when the state doesn't step in to help we know that family members um take that role on and of course statistics coming out last week really indicated that you know you're much more likely to live in poverty either if you're disabled or if you are a carer um, and we know that the numbers of carers have grown during the pandemic and, and many of them won't have the choice of looking for a job elsewhere, of course, and are looking um, at a financial situation that, that's looking very, very challenging right now. I was speaking to a woman last week in North Yorkshire who was saying how she'd given up her job so that she could care for her mother and that it was... You know, on the one hand, obviously she wants to provide care for for her her mum, but 
they struggled to get the four care visits a day that they still needed because coping mm. on your own with no respite, with no break, and no one actually to to help with those jobs, which, you know, perhaps a daughter doesn't necessarily want to be doing for a mother or, you know, the, the some of the personal care, which which feels like it, it um depending it depends entirely on the individuals and the families but but can feel difficult for for people depending on their circumstances indeed really really tricky decisions that families are having to make so um back to politics if i might um so in jeremy hunt we of course have a chancellor who has claimed he would like to right the wrongs he made when he was health and care secretary um, so what do you think now needs to happen, perhaps in relation to the Treasury, to support that social care reform? I think we are facing a really interesting time on this. You know, um, Jeremy Hunt, obviously, as health and social care secretary, the longest serving health and social care secretary, um, had the opportunity to bring in change he was in the role when in, I think it was 2015, the, the last plans for the cap on care costs was delayed. And it's worth remembering the reason it was delayed was there was a request, request from local authorities because they didn't feel the system was stable enough to bring about that level of change. Well, ro roll forward and we're here in 2022. Again, we've got local authorities saying, we are really worried about the stability of the system. We don't think we can implement the, the the changes needed for the reforms to have them up and running by uh, next year. So they are calling for a 12-month delay. Now, I can see in political terms, when you're trying to look at the public finances, that it would seem perhaps a win-win a delaying by 12 months. But I think the, the caveat, the kicker in what local authorities are saying is that they still need the money to stabilise the system, to deal with the workforce issues, to deal with the requests for support that um, are piling up. We've got more than half a million people waiting for some sort of council care service at the moment. So it doesn't necessarily mean uh, they're still asking for the money, basically, and it's the money that's the issue. And I don't know what, I, th I think it is a real dilemma about which we will find out about shortly. But obviously the money that Rishi Sunak had set aside to um, the um, health and social care le levy is being scrapped. That still, still seems to be going through. So there will be really tough decisions that have to be made about how do they find that money. And of course, if the money isn't found, if, if reform is pushed back and um, increased finances pushed back. Obviously, there's a on a personal level for Jeremy Hunt, there'll be a dilemma about that. But I think the bigger question is: are the, is the cost of that too great when we can see the impact that social care shortages are having on the NHS and the wider system? Because that has a cost, a human, huge, huge human cost, but it also has a cost to the functioning of a much wider system. So I think it's a huge question. I don't know the answer, um, and it, but it will be very interesting to see what uh, Jeremy Hunt, who is so well placed to know exactly what the issues are, what he'll decide.
Mm, it's difficult, isn't it? And th- there's a really interesting point that you just made there around there being 500,000 people on a waiting list just to get an assessment. And we see with our work that that delaying and denying assessments is one of the only ways that local authorities can control their budgets because once people's had people have had an assessment then they have a legal statutory duty to provide care and support so we see with our casework all the time people really who should have had assessments immediately being told to wait and often with severe safeguarding issues arising so yes as and and and, and then often being pushed into health so um, it, it ending up costing the state an awful lot more than it would have um, for a couple of hours of social care when somebody then ends up in on a hospital ward um, needing full-time care in a, in a hospital setting. So the, there are a lot of um, a lot of big questions that need sorting indeed. So we're ending this conversation with a bit of a cliffhanger. We'll have another prime minister by the end of the week. Do you have a message, Alison, about health and social care for our new prime minister? We're certainly at a time where, you know, it's it's changing by the hour. You you look to your phone for the next alert to see what is the next, uh, you know, who's been nominated, who hasn't been nominated. So it's an extraordinary time politically. I think I've followed social care for long enough to say that it is an issue that has proved in the past very easy for politicians to concentrate on the health service and look less at social care. They are a system that works to a greater or less extent very much together. We are already seeing the significant impact that problems in social care has on the NHS from the many people I talk to in the sector across the spectrum from hospital chief executives to local authority directors of adult social services to care providers, to families, to care workers. Every one of them is saying, you can't ignore this. You have to do something to stabilize the care system. And that that is the priority as far as they're concerned. Given the the chorus of voices there now is across the spectrum, I would say that this is an issue that a new prime minister will need to put fairly close to the top of their agenda at a very difficult time. Thank you. Wise words. And let's hope um, he or she's listening. Um, So thank you again for joining us today, Alison. And um, I do hope that you'll come back at some point once we've got our new prime minister and we can perhaps um, do an assessment of that performance. So um, let's see where we get to. But thanks again. um, And we'll see you soon. Hopefully that gave you some more insight into adult social care in the news. As you can see, we're facing great uncertainty and it's vital that charities like ours exist to support those struggling to meet their social care needs. Keep listening as I will now be chatting to another inspiring guest about their work or experience within the adult social care sector, asking how and why we need to see changes in the system. 
So I'd like to um, give a very warm welcome to Kira Lawrence and Adele Harris from Mencap. I'm absolutely delighted to have you both here as guests today, given Access Social Care's heritage um, and spinning out of Mencap. It's really so lovely to have you as our first ever guests. It's really lovely to be here. Yes, thank, thank you for you. inviting <laughs> us. We feel very uh, honoured to be your first guests. Oh, thank you. <laughs> So um, I'd like to just kick off. Um, perhaps you could begin by telling me and our listeners about yourself and your roles at Mencap. So Adele, I don't know if you don't mind going first. That would be brilliant if you could tell us about your chief executive role at Mencap and um, how you came to be chief executive there. Yes, I'm the uh, very fortunate to be the chief executive of the Royal Mencap Society, or Mencap as we're more commonly known. Um, my role at Mencap is to oversee the running of the charity and, and our subsidiaries. And obviously, I, I guess as CEO, I'm ultimately accountable for delivering on our charitable purpose and for delivering our big plan, our strategy. I won't give you my life story, it will take up the whole podcast, but um, my very first job when I left school was uh, actually as a, a police officer in the Metropolitan Police a long, long time ago. And when my first son Ross was born, he was born with a disability, a learning disability, something called Fragile X Syndrome. I gave up work and decided to use that time to do an open university degree because I hadn't gone to university. And the degree in health and social care took me into working in the NHS and then into the charitable sector. So I've worked in a homelessness charity and then prior to coming to Mencap, I was the CEO of a Scottish learning disability charity called Cornerstone. So that's a potted history of how I ended up here, but I feel very privileged to be in this role and will continue, hopefully for a good few years, to do my very best as the CEO at Mencap. Excellent, thank you. And Kira, um, I understand that you've got a slightly new job title since um, we used to work, or sit very closely next to each other in the Mencap office, but perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your new role at, at Mencap and, and how it came about. For sure I can. Um, so my job title now is Engagement Lead. So my corners of work are Mencap's five-year big plan. So with engagement, it means I'm talking to lots of people with a learning disability and making sure their voices are heard within our big plan so whenever we go and say what do you think we're doing well what do you think we could do better at what would you like Mencap to be like in a few years time what do you think we could do for people with a learning disability we take what they say and we go and we act on it so at the moment I've got some projects running um, internally with some groups of people with a learning disability and for me, that's my passion. I believe in learning disability because I am a person with a learning disability. And I really love getting to work with people with a learning disability every day, because I know that we're one of the most discriminated against groups in society. And I really feel if we're going to say that we want the big plan to be genuinely led by people with a learning disability, it's up to us to make sure that happens. So I'm very proud. And it all started with the secondment last year. And now I'm permanent and I'm really proud. And I've worked at Mencap now for 21 years. 
you know, I I love Mencap. I, I love what I do. I love working with my colleagues every day and making sure we're hearing the voices of people with a learning disability and acting on it. That's the most important thing that I can help do. And I really do think we're doing some terrific work at the moment. And uh, yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> That's great to hear all about that. And we'll come on to the big plan in a moment. Um, but can you tell us, Kira, about um, the biggest challenges you face as a spokesperson for the learning disability community? I think some of the barriers that we're facing are we're not as heard in the media as much as we should be. That's one thing. I think people are afraid to go and talk to people with a learning disability because they feel that if they say the wrong thing they'll upset them and I think there's a lot to do there I think they don't know what a learning disability is the media don't always know they sometimes get it wrong and we tell them what the right thing is um I think also that they don't always know where people with a learning disability are so it's very hard to find people um but there are also some good things there as well when we get to go out and speak to the media as people with a learning disability it's really powerful because it comes from our mouths and not the mouths of others and so when I get to go and talk to the media I get to go and sometimes do interviews and I talk about my life I talk about the lives of other people with a learning disability and I can say it with real passion because some of the things that they might face are things that I have faced in my past life or now. And it's really important that I go and see how it is because we can make real change. So, yeah, that's just some of the barriers. But also there are some good things, too. Thank you, Kira. So um, you've touched then upon Mencap's big plan, and I'm, I'm curious to hear from Adele's mouth this time, and perhaps a little bit more about Mencap's big plan and the aims of this project. Yes, our big plan, which was launched um, in 2020, in the uh, or co-produced rather in 2020, we were doing that, all that work, as we uh, led the organisation or managed through the pandemic so it was quite a, a challenge and we're very proud that we we managed to develop such an ambitious strategy in partnership with people with a learning disability and their families at that time so it was launched in April 2021 it's um, an ambitious and visionary plan our newly articulated vision is that we want the UK to be the best place in the world to live a happy and healthy life if you have a learning disability and to help um, achieve that vision, MENCAP is changing. We want, as Kira's already articulated, to be genuinely led by people with a learning disability. And we're putting people with, who have a learning disability in the driving seat. There's other changes happening at, at MENCAP too. We want to work far more in local communities. So we see our role as rather than MENCAP being a, an organisation or a charity that appears in the local community to set up a programme to deliver something. We see our role much more as supporting people in local communities to develop their own capabilities. So we're changing the way that we work. We want to be known more for all the research that we do, either by ourselves or in partnership with um, academics and others in the field. So we want to be much more evidence-led and much more of a, a research-type uh, organisation. We want to support people with a learning disability themselves to successfully campaign on issues that are important to them 
And that's linked very much with what Kira just said about being the spokesperson or uh, people with a learning disability themselves and self-advocates being the ones whose voices are heard. We want to work a lot more in partnership with other uh, organisations, learning disability charities and others. And we want to be known for providing very specialist support and advice to people with a learning disability and their families. So through the big plan, we've invested a lot in our information and advice helpline, for example. We're also introducing some new ways of working um, to empower colleagues and to devolve decision making to teams in, in local communities. And that has all one overriding objective, which is to ensure the people that we're here to serve can live or have the best opportunity to live happy and healthy lives. Um, because of COVID, some of our ambitious plans quite understandably have been delayed, um, but despite the pandemic, we have achieved so much. And I think as we come towards the end of the year two of implementing the big plan, MENCAP does feel different and we're operating in quite a different way. Super, thanks Adele. So um, you've touched then upon partnership and the information and advice service and as a prior director of the information and advice service at, at, at MENCAP, it's really brilliant to hear about that development and, and obviously we have that connection with MENCAP because we have MENCAP as a member of Access Social Care meaning that if people call your helpline or if people in your services experience injustice or unlawful treatment, then they can be referred through to our legal team for advice and support. So I'm curious um, what both of your thoughts are about what that service might mean for families and the difference that it can make. Shall I start, Kira, and then you, you come in um, with your thoughts? So... It, it's absolutely critical. It's interesting when we were developing the, the big plan and say it was co-produced with uh, people with a learning disability and families and other partner organisations. Um, we uh, understand from what families tell us in particular that the information and advice at a time of crisis or at a time of extreme need when families are really struggling, they don't know where to go, they don't know how to navigate the system. Um, obviously, some of the more serious cases uh, that we're both involved in uh, involve families who are fighting on behalf of their loved ones, uh, either not to be admitted into an assessment and treatment unit or to um, have the appropriate care and support in the community when they have found themselves in a hospital setting um, in the wrong environment. So when we were co-producing the big plan, we obviously had a decision to make about whether or not we continue to provide an information and uh, advice service to people with a learning disability and their families, and a decision to make, of course, about the, the partnership arrangements we have with Access. But it wasn't ever in any doubt because it's such a, sadly, it's such a, a needed service. And being able to make referrals uh, from our information and advice service which as you know is more sort of generic help and advice and signposting to be able to make those referrals to access and know that families are going to get the attention the time the legal expertise and the support that they need on these critically important matters is is really important to us so it's a partnership that i can see hopefully uh, lasting for many many years it's sad that it's needed but it's absolutely critical and vital at the moment Kira, do you have any thoughts? Yes, I believe, I totally agree with Adele, it's critical, it's needed. 
um, you know, and families like mine, you know, I wasn't diagnosed with my learning disability until the age of 10 years old. It took me to be pulled out of the third mainstream school. And then they went, oh, there's a problem here. And I finally got the SEN, the old statementing SEN process through my local authority. And then I went to a special needs school. But it took until there was a real incident in my last school for them to go, okay, there's an issue here. Let's get care support. And for years, my family had been saying to the school, look, there's issues at home. And the school was saying there's issues at school. Nobody ever did anything about it. I went under the net for so long. And finally, when a person came into my school and she said um, that I looked like I had a learning disability and she was an educational psychologist and she assessed me at school. She talked to my teachers, she watched me in classes. She was able to pinpoint that I might have a learning disability. And then at that time I got assessed, I went through the special needs education and statementing process and I went to a special school and I flourished there. I got the right support to grow and to develop. I made loads of friends. I learned loads of new skills. And now look at me, I'm married. I live in my own home. I have a career. You know, I have lots of other volunteer um, charity roles that are very important outside of makeup that I also have, which I'm very also very passionate about. And, you know, I my life's so much better now because I have the right support around me. I have people who are positive around me and that has made the world a difference. So I believe, you know, I talk to other parents who have children in my area who have a learning disability and they're really struggling and I meet up for coffee with them. We try and put the world to rights together and I try and help them as much as I can and give them what the information I know and it really helps them. So it's so needed. Thank you, Kira. That's, thank you for sharing your story with us a little bit. And, and I'm so glad that you did end up getting the right support. Yeah. Um, sometimes we can work at the sharp end and it can feel quite hard because um, we see many families that aren't getting the right support and have been fighting for years to get the right support. Sometimes that ends up with people being sectioned and being trapped in mental health institutions. Um, and those can be some of the hardest cases that we work on. Um, but similarly, um, we see people at the lower end of the need spectrum not getting the right support. Um, and that can lead to people's lives and, and people's outcomes in their lives not being as good as they could have been. So, I, I mean, we work on these cases one case at a time, but I'm really curious to know what you both think about how we can turn those wins into big change how can we have a a change on a much bigger level for society um, and I, I'm just curious to know what you both think about that um, Kira perhaps you'd like to go first I mean it, it sounds like the work that you're doing with other families is really amazing the support that you're giving and the, and the voluntary work that you do um, so I'm, I'm curious to know how you think you can drive change for everybody and then perhaps I'll come to you Adele if you don't mind 
I just want to be a role model for other children with a learning disability in my area of Surrey. There's a lot of cuts going on right now to services that they need and their parents are struggling. And so I'll meet up with them for a coffee and I'll say, how can I help you? And if I know the information, I try and signpost them to other organizations. I, I tell them about our helpline. I get them like into Mencap and like I say, talk to this person. And I, if I can just help know the information that I know and help them, then I can probably help make small change. I probably can't do everything. I'm not superwoman, but I just try and help their children to have the best life they can because I want them to grow up knowing they can have a job, they can have a relationship, they can have friends, they can have life and have good support and try and be a role model to them. That's, yeah, I'm sure that it makes an enormous difference for those families, Kira, to hear your experience and to get advice from you. But other than cloning Kira and having um, thousands of her across the country, um, Adele, what, what, what ideas do you have for, for driving that big change? And I think this is one of the most challenging parts of all of our roles on this podcast today, isn't it? That we can see on a day-to-day basis the small victories or the small changes that are happening in in people's lives people with a learning disability and that in our case could be through our personal support services where we provide individual and personalized care and support for people with a learning disability or it could as we've just described be through some piece of information or advice or guidance that we're able to provide to a family but it is really challenging that over many years I mean Mencap's been around for 75 years and you think about Judy Frid, our founder, and why she set Mencap up in the in the first place. And of course it's wonderful to see that so many people with a learning disabilities lives are better now than they were 75 years ago. But there's still so much to do on what we describe internally as shifting the dial and really making a difference. We know there's still people with a learning disability and autism locked away in inappropriate settings, often away long way from home. We know that life expectancy is still poor when you compare it to the life of expect life expectancy of um, non-disabled peers. We know people still face stigma and discrimination, and so all these small victories and you know s- small achievements, I guess somehow we need to try and break through so that change is happening at a societal level. And I'll just give a quick example, if I may. It's related to the pandemic. I know we're all trying to move on. But when you think about the work that MENCAP and others, other self-advocates and other campaigning groups did around the blanket use of do not attempt resuscitation notices about the clinical guidance that was issued in terms of access to ventilators, a very successful um, vaccination campaign that uh, we and others ran to ensure people with a learning disability were on the priority list. All these sorts of things, A, shouldn't happen in the first place, but B, when they do, you you really have to hope that through those victories, and and I don't suppose we can use the word small in in the case of all of those, but through those victories, that something changes that's longer lasting than just the situation we're in during a pandemic, for example. So you've got to hope that uh, people think differently about health inequality, they think differently about access to healthcare because of those small victories. And I guess it's our job just to keep going, isn't it? And to keep beating that drum. Absolutely. 
I've segued quite nicely there into my next question, which is this idea of levelling up. So it's a term that we hear um, quite a lot in our political world. And I talk about politics at a time where we're recording this podcast at a time when there's enormous um, political turbulence and um, all sorts of U-turns happening. But the term levelling up has been a bit of a catchphrase for the Boris Johnson administration. Um, it remains to be seen whether that continues to be given so much importance under the next administration, whoever it might be that's that's leading it. But I, I'm, I'm curious to know what you think levelling up means for those of us who are involved in the adult social care and disability sectors, particularly in, in terms of working age disabled adults. And so perhaps, Kira, um, I I'll come to you first. How do you think we can make the lives of people with a learning disability better? And what do you think the current barriers are? OK, that's a good question. So what can be done to make people's lives better? Have good, equal access to health care like anybody else. We all know that people with a learning disability don't always get the right health care and it's not always equal. So we want that and then people's lives will be better that way. We want more people with a learning disability to have meaningful work and have jobs. We want people to be able to live in a home of their choosing with the right support and have a home of their own in, in, in an ordinary street, in an ordinary house. Um, we want just equal fairness. We want people to see us. We want society to change their attitudes. We want to break down the walls. We want to break down the barriers. And I really, you know, I really hope I've been a small part of that over the years that, you know, I've gone and said things to people like MPs and the media and say, look, you know, this is really important because we're here like anybody else in this world. We have rights like anybody else. But I think it's also transport, healthcare, education, employment, benefits at the moment, the benefit system really isn't very accessible and it's not easy to go through. There's so many things at the moment that do need to change, but I really think it starts with society. It starts with the public society's view of people with a learning disability. That really needs to change. And it is starting to change, but it's not quick enough from my view. I think also training, good awareness needs to happen. The companies need learning disability awareness training. Companies, people need to understand what a learning disability is and isn't. They need to meet people like me and hear our stories because then they'll change their attitudes. And we do a lot of that through MENCAP. And I love going out and doing those kind of things because I can tell people my story and they'll listen to me and they'll be passionate. And I, so there are lots of things. So employment, education, healthcare, benefits, transport, there's housing, there's lots of things that need to change. I think we have started that journey, but there's a long way to go. I'm smiling, Kira, because it sounds like a manifesto. I mean, I'm totally bought in. <laughs> I know, Kira, Kira for PM, that's Absolutely. what I say. <laughs> yeah. 
Excellent. I don't know whether you can add to that, Adele, but I, I, I will hand over to you. Not very much. Um, Kira's wonderful uh, advocate, isn't she? I think in the context of social care and social care reform, rather than trying to answer the question in the round, because Kira's done that so brilliantly well, I do have some really serious concerns at the moment when you think about the term levelling up and what it was supposed to mean around, you know, equality and social care policy, including people of working age. But I do worry at the moment that the political agenda and all the emphasis, you know, in the health and care reform, we've heard just this morning, haven't we, that um, the health and social care levy is, is being pulled. So there's questions about, well, where is that money going to come from if there is a commitment to invest in the sector? But my major concern is that people with a learning disability continue to be towards the bottom of that levelling up agenda pile and priority list. So all the focus in terms of social care reform is on the impact older people staying in hospital when they should be in the community is having on the NHS. And I'm not saying that's not important, of course it is. But if there's a limited pot of funding and that's where the priority is, inevitably it means that people with a learning disability in their families are going to be left on waiting lists. We know there's thousands of people waiting even for that initial assessment, let alone for a package of care and support to help them live uh, valued lives in the community. So I, I do fear um, we're not just standing still, that we're going a little bit backwards in terms of learning disability and social care policy. So we will continue at MENCAP to have that at the very top of our, our priority list for our campaigning and influencing work. With the cost of living crisis and everything else that's going on, it's really important that people with a learning disability of working age are not forgotten and their voices are not drowned out because of all the other pressures on the system. Quite well put, Adele. I mean, we often forget, don't we, that half of the adult social care spend in this country is on working age adults. And a really significant percentage of that 50% is then spent on, on people with a learning disability. Um, and, and in that context, then it's, it is really um, shocking that it's often overlooked, you know, the, the needs of working age adults within the adult social care system. And you're right, you know, as we, we, we seem to be looking at another period of austerity and the thought of adult social care experiencing further trimming of the budget is just I mean it's hard to imagine where you trim that from um, with a system that's um, that's really struggling. No I was, all I was going to add was just interestingly in the last couple of weeks we've uh, had a report um, an independent report uh, from local authorities on the market if you like in in the context of learning disability and where they they see MENCAP as a social care provider. And I'll just make one point from, from the report, which was that local authorities are saying that they want social care providers to be innovative. They're talking a lot about innovation. But when you push them and say, what do you mean by innovation? So obviously it's a word that's, that's bandied about a lot. What they actually mean is ways in which we can enhance the service that we provide, but spend less money doing so. So the, the word innovation is wrapped around cost cutting and efficiencies. And as you've said, Carrie, where can we possibly, not just MENCAP, but any other social care provider at the moment, make any efficiencies? Um, what we need is an investment in the sector. And then you'll see the innovation follow. 
Mm. And I'm, I'm curious, as a social care provider, Adele, have you, have you any reflections on the current situation of adult social care? I have a uh, hundred that would <laughs> would take take up hours, but I think the the priority, if I had to choose just one, it's the highest risk on our risk register at the moment. It's the staffing crisis um, because without good people, this is a people business. If you're providing really personal care and support to enable people to live their best lives, you have to know them. You know, you, you the, the people part of of social care provision is absolutely critical. And at the moment, we and the whole sector are suffering a real workforce crisis. So unless there's an investment made at a national level in the pay and reward and recognition for a really valued profession, I can't see things changing anytime soon. We're all just running to keep up, carrying huge numbers of vacancies, not in a position to pay our colleagues they should be paid on a par with the NHS, for example. So if I could only pick one thing at a moment, it would be a plea that some investment is made in the in the workforce and not a tinkering around the edges or a we'll put some money into training. It's got to be a commitment to value the profession and to demonstrate to those who work in social care that they are valued in a way that we tried to do during the pandemic, clapping on the doorsteps. But with the cost of living and everything else that's going on, families can't live on you know, £10, £10.30, whatever it might be an hour. They need a proper investment in pay and reward. Mm. And it, I think it was Skills for Care, the report that came out last week, wasn't it, that told us there is 160,000 vacancies. And we know that people, people who've worked for decades in the social care sector are leaving mm because they can't afford to heat their homes or they can't afford to feed their children and leaving for jobs in retail and jobs in service industry when they actually really just want to continue being providing care and support to mm. people and that that's a tragedy uh, but also I think what we see um, within access social care with our casework is that the workforce crisis is of course starting to impact on quality and sustainability of services. Um, we have a membership model. We work with social care providers and many of them are telling us that they can't staff their services, that they're having to hand contracts back. And at the end of the day, the people that are impacted upon are the people with a learning disability or the other people with social care needs that need those services um, to be able to live the lives that they want to live. And um, so it is, it is a great worry. So on to perhaps a, a slightly brighter note then, Adele, um, I'm curious about what legacy you would like to leave behind once you do decide that, you know, you, you, you can hang up your hat at, at Mencap. What, what would it be that you'd be, like to be really proud of? I always think the legacy question is quite a challenging one, but when I reflect on, on, on that uh, question, I think about two things really. I guess I, on a personal level, I want to be able to uh, walk away knowing that I've left Mencap, the charity, in a good, a good place, a sustainable position so that it can continue for another 75 years to do the amazing work that it currently does as a charity. And the second sort of less personal part of the uh, answer is that, you know, we have 
together, myself, my colleagues, people with the learning disability, families and partners, come up with this vision only two years ago that we want the UK to be the best place in the world to live a happy and healthy life if you have a learning disability. And I would hope that part of my legacy is that we've got a little bit closer to achieving that vision. Lovely, thank you. And Kira, as a person with a learning disability, how about you? What would you like to be remembered for at MENCAP? I know that you will be remembered <laughs> for many reasons. Um, one of the reasons is I think that your um, your pink outfits are so extraordinary um, that, you know, you'll always be remembered for that. But I know that you'll be remembered for an awful lot more. But I'm curious, what is it that you want to be remembered for? I would like, I would hope to be remembered, I would like to be remembered as someone who stood up for people with a learning disability and tried to change the world for them to be a better place. Um, I want to see society go, we're going to talk to people with a learning disability, we are going to work with people with a learning disability, we are going to share the same room as people with a learning disability, we're going to do it together and that's that's the world that I want to leave behind, I want my legacy, when I finally shuffle off this world, I want to be able to say wow people with a learning disability are getting a better deal in this world and they're being equal they're being heard they're being seen and if i can leave on that note i've done my job and it's over to the next generation of people with a learning disability to hopefully carry on the banner for us and i would be very proud with that and i feel i've achieved so much already and there's so much more to do and I'm not planning on leaving anytime soon so please don't worry um I'm here for good until I can be um and I I just yeah just someone just someone with a learning disability who tried their best to change the world for people like me if I can leave that that's great Excellent. Thank you, Kira. And I can assure you, you're well on the way. Having been in conferences and seen your media interviews, you're an extraordinary ambassador for people with a learning disability. And I think um, really do turn many prejudices on their heads. So um, I, I hope that you have a, a, a long career and, and continue to do that brilliant work. So I've got one final question um, that I would like to pose to improve the state of our nation and to improve social care, what would be the biggest game changer for the social care sector, Adele? I think it relates to some of the comments I've already made. I think the biggest game changer would be for society, for our country to ask themselves the question, you know, what sort of society do we want to, to live in? We often talk about British values and these sorts of things without really articulating what they are but if it means anything at all it means that everyone in society irrespective of a disability or uh, of your ethnicity or of anything everybody in society has the equal opportunity to live a really valued life so i think for me the in terms of the state of the nation and the biggest game changer it's got to be accepting people with a disability for who they are and ensuring that we invest properly in the support and the environment they need in which to, to thrive. So that almost we don't have to be talking about or campaigning for or with people with a learning disability because it's not an issue. 
I can see you nodding, Kira. but do you have anything else to add? You know, one day I'm hoping that politics, there'll be more people with a learning disability in politics. I'm hoping one day we can see more people in the government with a learning disability. Wouldn't that be amazing? I'd like to see more people on TV, more people in film, you know, leading the way like Sarah Gordy, like Tommy Jessup at the moment, they're doing such wonderful work, you know, in the media and film industry, like they're being amazing at the moment. And I really want to see the media include us much more. I want to see politics include us much more, but I think there's a lot to do and it's co-production it's got to be done together right from the start right to the end and not just at the end and go what do you think of that it needs to be actually let's have this conversation let's start planning together let's work on it together real good co-production is the key to working well um and that's something that i believe in and inclusion is so important including people with a learning disability as much as possible so i think a game changer is is come and meet people like me, hear our stories, hear our experiences. We want to work with you. We want to change your attitude. And if we can do that, the world will change, but it's up to society to come and talk to us and meet us and hear us. And then hopefully things will get better. And I then think that would be an amazing game changer. And then I can hang up my campaigning shoes. A very strong message there, Kira. Thank you. And, and it's such an important one, isn't it? We know that decisions are much better when they're made with experts by experience and I think that's something a message that we should all listen to when thinking about improving adult social care well a huge thank you to you both for for coming along to the podcast today um, and I wish you all the very best with your future mission and the big plan um, I'm, I'm sure that it will be a success and I, I look forward to following both of your journeys um, throughout adult social care. Thank, Thank you very so much. much. Thank you for listening in to this month's episode of the State of Our Nation. For more information, please go to www.accesscharity.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at accesscharity1. At a time when the third sector continues to struggle in the face of economic uncertainty, your support has never meant more. That's why I would like to take this opportunity to let you know about our cost of living crisis campaign set up to help us provide free legal advice to people in England, ensuring they get the support they're entitled to. To make a pledge, please see the link to our Crowd Justice page in the bio. I hope you will all tune in next month to hear our next exciting panel of guests.